Leviticus chapter 2. What a great time of worship through song this morning every week. Our worship team, Grayson and, and his team, does an amazing job each week. Uh, again, we started this series last week. We're talking about the sacrifices laid out in Leviticus. And uh, to be honest, it's a little intimidating to preach this because it's, it's weird. Uh, there's some weird stuff that, that was required. And so we look at some of those things now through our cultural lenses and our context and just go, what in the world was that? And so hopefully we're going to try to explain that. We're going to try to walk through it, interpret it, understand what it meant for the original audience and the original context, and then see how we can glean some things that really practically apply to our lives. And I think today's a great example of that. We, we're going to talk about the, the fact that we need atonement. That's the overarching uh, sermon topic for the next several weeks until we get to September. Uh, that word make atonement in the, in the Hebrew is kafar. And it means to cover, to forgive, or to expiate, to reconcile. It's not covering as in hiding. It's covering as in substituting, removing, and replacing. And so today we're going to talk about why we need atonement is for restoration to his service. For restoration to his service. And we're going to look at the grain offering as we do that. Now, in just a moment, we're going to stand and read the first three verses. But there's a lot more to this. Contextually, there's a lot more in this chapter we're just going to read the first three verses to kind of open up the, the, the topic, the discussion, and then we're going to go back and cover some of the rest of it as we work through. Uh, this is the grain offering, and the grain offering in the Hebrew, and I'm going to try to say this without ruining a microphone, because some of the Hebrew words have some uh, kind of guttural, back-of-the-throat uh, pronunciations, and I'm going to try not to, so Daryl, if it shorts out, I apologize. The, the Hebrew word for grain offering is mecha, the mecha. And it literally means a donation, specifically one of a sacrificial offering. So, so just think about the beauty of that as it relates to how we're supposed to live our lives and how we're supposed to worship. We're going to get into Romans 12, obviously. I mean, I would hope that most of you, if you've been around church life for very long, you would hear the definition of grain offering and you, your mind would start kind of clicking to what Paul says to the church at Rome in chapter, chapter 12. But we're going to look at this and think about what the grain offering meant to them, how we can apply it to ourselves today. Now, one last word of warning, and then I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to read. There are a lot of similarities in what we talk about with the, the, the burnt offering last week and the grain offering this week. Don't lose, don't lose momentum there. Don't, don't lose traction. We're going to talk about some things that are going to sound eerily similar, but there are a lot of differences in this offering, the grain offering, as compared to the burnt offering. If you'll stand, let's read the first three verses of Leviticus chapter 2. We, we want to stand, uh, those of you that are new here, we stand in honor of the public reading of the Almighty, uh, in, uh, the uh, inerrant, infallible, inspired, all-sufficient word of Almighty God. Amen? So let's read. When anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, it is to consist of fine flour. Now, while we're reading these ingredients, make a mental note, okay? He is to pour olive oil on it, put frankincense on it, and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. The priest will take a handful of fine flour and oil from it, along with all its frankincense, and will burn this memorial portion of it on the altar, a fire offering of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering will belong to Aaron and his sons. It is the holiest part of the fire offerings to the Lord. Father God, would you speak to us today? Give us clarity, wisdom, and insight from your scriptures. Help us to apply them to our lives to help us 
know Christ more fully, follow him more closely, and glorify him in everything that we do. And we'll praise you for that in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So I want us to look at four things from this passage today. And I want us to think about, as we work through these, how we can see the similarities between the grain offering and, and our acts of worship. Uh, by the way, just parenthetically, so you can get a vision. If you're like me, you're a visual, I'm a visual learner. And so when you think about the grain offering, when you think about these cakes, it would really look like a pancake for us. The closest thing we can get to what it looked like would be kind of like a pancake, a flat, uh, you know, floury, uh, breaded portion, uh, either cooked or uncooked, but that, that's how they would do it and how, how they would prepare it. So the first thing I want us to think about and look at in this offering is the fact that it is a celebratory offering. Uh, this isn't a specific thing that is brought out in one verse, but through the entire chapter, chapter 2, we can really understand that this was a celebratory act, this bringing of the offering. It was done as an act or symbol of worship and thankfulness for the provisions of God. But basically what they're saying is, God, you've been so good to us, we just want to give you glory through this act. We just want to offer this sacrifice as a way to show our appreciation for all that you've done. I've heard people say we should never tell people that they should live in a way to earn the salvation that has been so richly and freely given to them. Okay, but to be fair, I also like, I think that's a good way to think of it. I like thinking of it in that, in that respect. Like, Jesus has done so much for me. He's given me so much. I really want to just live my life in a way that shows my appreciation. I want to live every day of my life. I want to do everything that I can possibly do to, to repay, in a manner of speaking, all that he's given me. Now, he, his salvation is not contingent upon my repayment. And I want to be clear about that. But the sense, the, the mental you know, workings of, hey, he's asking me to do something. There's really nothing that's off the plate. There's nothing that's off the table for him to ask me to do because of all that he's done for me. Uh, my yes is there. My yes is already on the table. Now, the grain offering was always offered after the burnt offering when both were offered at the same occasion. It was done out of an overflow of thankfulness for God's gift and his provision, really much like what our worship should be today. And I want to clarify for a second. I'm going to use these terms interchangeably, and I know that may, may be a little bit confusing. But when we talk about the word worship, I'm going to give you the definition of the Greek word in just a minute, and that will help give some clarity. But when I say worship, a lot of times, what do you think of? When you say worship, you're thinking of what we just got through doing, what we just finished doing. We had songs and musicians and words on the screens, and we sang these songs to Jesus, about Jesus, and that's our worship. That's a part of our worship. That is, that is one outflowing of our worship. When we stood and read the Word of God, that is worship. What I am doing right now, preaching the gospel, is an act of worship. What you are doing now, putting up with me preaching the gospel, is an act of worship. Some of you would say a tremendous burden to do that. I understand. I don't like listening to me. I don't know how in the world y'all do it every week. But everything we do truly is an act of worship. Everything we do. All that we do, and we're going to talk about that more in a minute, but that's the focus we have to have. There was no specific amount specified. You see it just says bring some fine flour and, and oil and frankincense. It doesn't say a cup, a gallon, a quart, uh, a liter, a meter. Uh, it doesn't say any of that. It just says bring it. So there's no specified amount, which is a little different than the burnt offering. 
And so there are more flexible requirements. You could add to uh, s- some stuff to make it more of a personalized offering as you prepare this. Uh, th- this is a little bit more of a personal flair kind of an offering. You could do what you wanted to within the parameters given to kind of express your worship in a little bit more uh, personalized way. Now, if you are waiting until Sunday to come here or to go to some other house of worship, and for us, if you're waiting for that countdown, the, the, you're waiting for the countdown, the big three, it goes, now let's get ready to worship, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, and you hear the music start. If that's what you're waiting for in order to worship God, you are doing it wrong. You should not be thinking about your week as something other than what we do when the music starts here on Sunday morning. If you think that that's all worship is, you have a very narrow and dim view of worship. I was talking to a friend of mine last night about how people who think morality is the only thing that we should focus on when it comes to a relationship with Jesus, they look at a relationship with Jesus through a very narrow... It's like when you're a little kid. Anybody, when you're a little kid, you play pirate when your mom got finished with a roll of uh, paper towels? I, I just... We were poor in Florida. Thank you, Austin. Poor people in Florella. That's what we did. We were broke. It was a small town. There ain't nothing else to do. Watch paint dry. Try to hit rock, uh, hit bugs with rocks, and apparently play pirate. Me and Austin, I would get that paper towel roll and I would look through it, and it's not a very good peles- uh, p- uh, periscope, not periscope, telescope, monoscope is what it should be called because it's only one of them. It just makes everything look. You're just looking in a. It doesn't. It doesn't magnify. That's what we do when we think of worship as what we come here to do on Sunday morning when the music's playing. You have a very narrow view. The relationship we have with Christ, the opportunity we have to worship the risen king is much bigger than 10 or 15 minutes, 20 minutes in a worship service on a Sunday morning. If you're only worshiping when we stand here and say, let's worship, you are missing out on the vast majority of what the joy of worshiping the Lord really is. Paul says it, Romans 12:1. He says we're supposed to present our bodies as a living Sacrifice, And he says it this way. He says in the, in the uh, CSB, it is your true worship. Some translations say your reasonable act of worship or your reasonable act of service. Now, why would it say worship and service? Here's what I told you. This is why it can be confusing when we throw that term around. In the Greek, the word worship means latria, or the word worship is latria. And what its definition is, ministry or service to God. It doesn't say singing. It doesn't say playing an instrument, but it doesn't take those out of the equation of worship. Worship is singing. It is playing an instrument. It is doing everything. What worship is, is everything that God asks you to do. Everything he makes opportunity for you to do. That is your reasonable service. Your reasonable worship is to present your body as a living sacrifice. You may be thinking, man, if I present my body as a living sacrifice, I'm going to be the head of the class in worship. No, you're not. You're a C student in worship. If you present your body as a living sacrifice. In other words, I put myself on the altar and say, God, anything that does not glorify you, anything that does not please you, burn it up. I want to be used by God. I want to be used for God. I want my body, my life, my thoughts to be an act 
of worship in everything, not just in here on Sunday, but when I leave here, when I go to a restaurant, I want to worship the Lord through, through the way I treat the, the wait staff, the, the waitress, the waiter, the, the cook, the, the guy at the door. When I go to the grocery store, I want it to be my act of worship, the way I treat people that I encounter. Now, I don't always do that. I, sometimes I fall short because I have a tendency to get in my own head and I get tunnel vision. I get to thinking too much and, and I'm, it's like I'm living in a bubble. I don't even see people. But, but I want to be better at that. I want to make sure that people know I have the love of Christ in me. And I'm not trying to smuggle it. I'm trying to share it. Finding something to celebrate in every situation of life is the mark of a life focused on things that are eternal. Now, in the great classic movie... Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou?, which ought to be required viewing at any classically training and teaching institution of higher learning, you have Pete and Delmer. Pete and Delmer are two of the characters, and they are talked into escaping from the prison farm back in the day with their buddy Everett. And the movie rocks on a little bit. They get in a very harrowing situation. After it, they're doing some, some internal pondering and, and just thinking about the meaning of life. And, uh, and so Everett admits to them that he, what he taught them into breaking out for was a lie. He taught them into, into leaving the farm and breaking out of jail for this vast fortune that he had. And it turns out he was lying. He was just trying to get back so he could catch and get his, make, make up with his wife before she married somebody else. And when he reveals this, uh, Pete, the great thinker that he was, he started pondering and, and doing the mathematics. And he said, you know, I was only a couple weeks from getting out. And with the time they're going to add to my sentence for escaping... I won't, get out of, I won't get out until I'm 84 years old. And Delmer, the eternal optimist that we all should ascribe to be, stands there for a moment and he calculates and he goes, well, I'll only be 82. <laughs> now, can I tell you something? When I watched that, when I looked at that, I was jealous of Delmar. I want to be a Delmar. I want to be thinking of things, hey, this is this terrible calamity that is going to befall you. Okay, but how can I give God glory through that? Oh, oh, this, this is going to be a terrible situation. You're going to live, have to live through it, have to deal with and process. Okay, but, but I'm going to be able to give God glory through that. It, see, if you think eternally, you don't get caught up in the minutia of the everyday. You don't get caught up in the minutia of the secular. Your mind, trained by God, inspired and moved by the Holy Spirit of God, clicks over and starts thinking, how can I make eternal difference through whatever it is that I'm going through. That's a celebratory offering. Not only how they did this in Leviticus, but how you walk through your daily life in a way that points people to the only hope in this universe, and his name is Jesus. For the person who has given their life to Jesus and is a child of God, there is always a reason to celebrate. No matter what the world throws at you, you can look with hope and say I'll only be 82 so it's a celebratory offering number two it's a costly offering look at verse one he says this to consist of fine flour he says to put olive oil on it put frankincense in it all of these were expensive things there was cost involved grain was a valuable commodity in this time in this region, especially during the years they wandered in the wilderness. So they, they had this wilderness experience, and they would be, uh, my, my grandparents, my granddad, my, my dad's dad was born in 1900. And so he lived, he was a young adult during the Great Depression. Can I tell you this? When my grandmother cooked, nothing that went 
into breakfast got thrown away. It got turned into some part of lunch. And whatever got turned into lunch and didn't get eaten got turned into supper. There were very seldom any leftovers because she all, it was a miracle. It was like loaves and fishes. Like Grayson, she would cook breakfast and lunch and supper, and everybody would have plenty to eat and be stuffed to the gills, and there'd be no leftovers. It's every time it was amazing to me how she did that. Uh, she would eat, they would eat chicken, and my grandfather would eat the chicken bone like the chicken leg. We were poor, we always ate dark meat. And so he would lay the, he, didn't, he would put the bones on the table. My grandmother would get them, and she would gnaw on the bone and suck on the bone until it was as white as a piece of paper. And I was like, that's gross. And I found, as a little kid, I'm like, that's nasty. What is she doing? And so I asked my dad, and my dad said, well, you got to remember, they grew up during the Depression. They didn't know if they were going to eat a meal a day, a meal every few days. And so they would get these chicken bones, and they would suck the marrow out because they needed those nutrients. See, that's got to be our mindset. When it comes to what we're doing for God, we've got to have the same mindset of putting value on whatever God gives us that my granny had with those chicken bones, with the children of Israel had with that grain. When God said it's got to be made of fine flour, they immediately recognized that God was asking them to worship through something that had value, that carried uh, a weight with it. The fact that it was fine meant it was the purest form of flour. It was there was a lot of a great deal of effort. It wasn't like these machinery things we have now. They would have to grind and press and 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 do a lot of work to to crush it down to where it was the finest form it could be, and it couldn't have any impurities in it. This was not just whatever flour was laying around. Maybe maybe you found everybody anybody ever opened your flour and had weevils in it. By the way, weevils is just protein. Y'all just calm down. Get over yourself. Just don't tell anybody. They won't know. It'll be all right. But they, would, they couldn't use that flour because that was impure. They had to have pure, fine flour. Here's the, the premise that I want you to understand. Nothing that isn't costly is ever truly valued. Nothing that isn't costly is ever truly valued. Now, that doesn't mean you have to spend a lot of money on something for it to be valued. It just has to, it has to have cost. There has to be either a monetary or a, an emotional. There has to be some kind of sacrifice to make it costly. I, I love this quote. I posted this this morning because I've just been sitting on it for a couple weeks, and it's so good. But in Oswald Chambers' great uh, devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest, he, he has this quote. What our Lord wants us to present to him is not our goodness, honesty, or our efforts to do better, but real, solid sin. Don't miss this. Actually, that is all he can take from us. And what he gives us in exchange for our sin is real, solid righteousness. He takes your failures and he gives you righteousness. He takes your flaws and he gives you perfection. He takes your death and he gives you life. Chambers goes on to say, but we must surrender all pretense that we are anything and give up all our claims of even being worthy of God's consideration. I had a, a guy one time and, and, and I know his heart so it didn't bother me when he said it, but he would say, how you doing? And one time I said, I'm better than I deserve. And he said, oh, no, he got real serious. No, no, don't ever say that. You're a child of the king. You deserve this and this. And I was like, okay. And I just kind of, you know, okay. I disagree. I know me without Jesus. I, I was around me for, I don't know, 26 years without Jesus. I didn't like me. I, I'm not a big fan of me now. I really didn't like me back then. And by the way, if you had known me back then, you wouldn't have liked me either. 
because I was a pompous, arrogant, self-centered jerk. I understand what God did when he took me from death to life. I understand how much my forgiveness cost. It cost God his son. He cost Jesus his life. I understand my worth outside of the blood of Christ is a big, fat nothing. But Christ saw me as valuable. Christ redeemed me from all the muck and mire that I was in. He pulled me out of the mud. He sat me on the rock. He gave me salvation. I understand that, and therefore, I realize how costly it was when Jesus went to the cross for me. Olive oil, again, was very costly. It was also a symbol of richness and good times. Four times in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 28, Hosea 2, Haggai 1, and Joel 1, there are references to a lack of olive oil being synonymous with times of plague and punishment. In other words, they're talking about how bad things are, and they say there was no oil. That's how valuable olive oil was. If there was no oil, they knew times were tough. Frankincense is a resin, and it symbolizes holiness and righteousness. It emitted a very fragrant aroma. I looked it up this past week to make sure I had an accurate number. Today's cost, today's price for frankincense can be up to $6,000 a liter. So it was very valuable for them to put this in there. Uh, according to an article on gotquestions.org, it says the gift of frankincense to the Christ child was symbolic of his willingness to become a sacrifice, wholly giving himself up analogous to a burnt offering. That's the frankincense. It's a reminder for them. Now, verse 13, if you look further down, it also calls for salt. And specifically it says the salt of the covenant with your God. See, not only was salt valuable, but it was used to symbolize covenants. Maybe you've been to a wedding where they did a salt covenant. You take his salt and her salt and you pour it together. And this was a, a Jewish thing that came from them saying, when our salt can be separated, our covenant can be broken. And obviously, unless you're one of those just, you think, I, I'm, I'm OCD. I'm not OCD enough to be able to recognize which salt was mine if we pour two cups of salt together. We did one of those a while back as a symbol of our covenant together to be followers of Christ and the body of Christ at Westmobile Baptist Church. Salt was valuable, and it was a symbolic thing that they did. So it was a celebratory offering. It was a costly offering. Number three, it was a consecrated offering. In the first part of verse 2, he tells them they have to bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. So they bring it to the sons, the priests, and the priests would, would basically make it consecrated. They would, they would make it holy. But you couldn't bring it if it contained yeast or honey. Again, that's verse 11. You can't have yeast or honey in there. Why? Because those two things were considered to be impurities. Yeast would, would cause it to rise. It would ferment. Honey would do the same thing. Honey can ferment if you get it in the right situation, right circumstances. The word yeast in the Hebrew is chalmates, and it means to be leavened. It also means to be grieved. It was not allowed in the Passover meal that God told them to prepare to celebrate the exodus. As a reminder of God's goodness and, and bringing them out of slavery, they would celebrate the Passover meal and it wasn't allowed to have yeast in it because yeast or leaven also often represented sin or some kind of a negative influence. Now, quickly, for time's sake, I'm going to be quick. I'm going to give you some examples. Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5. They're, they're dealing with this really perverse sexual sin that's going on in the church and they're aware of it and they're just letting it go. And Paul says, uh-uh. And so Paul writes this. He tells them in verse 6, he says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? 
So he tells them to clean out the old leaven so you can be a new unleavened batch. In other words, get the sin out of your midst. By the way, just FYI, I don't want to scare anybody. we got newcomers today, and y'all may, y'all may cancel your reservation after this. I'm going to be honest with you. If there, is, if there is some kind of sin that we're aware of going on in your life, and you claim to be a follower of Jesus and a member of this church, I'm going to come after that like a heat-seeking missile. Not to try to hurt you or embarrass you, but because we don't need to be leavened as the body of Christ here. We need to be as pure as we can be. Again, we all make mistakes, but I mean, if you have unrepentant sin that you're just letting ferment and fester in your life, and if I find out about it, we're going to have a conversation. It's going to be a tough conversation. I'm not looking forward to it, but I'm just telling you, based on Scripture, as your pastor, I, I, I'm, I'm responsible for, for letting that go, and I'm not going to do it. I'd rather have you mad at me than God mad at me. So Paul goes on to say, he, he says this, he reminds him, he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with the old leaven, but, uh, or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And then in Galatians 9, he's writing a letter to the church at Galatia. They were dealing with the leaven of legalism. There was this legalistic stuff being taught. They were putting more constraints on people. They weren't enjoying the grace of God. It was all about rule following. Again, it's that looking through that little narrow hole to look at things as, well, if you love God, you just need to be very moral. No, you need to give your whole life to him. You need to sacrifice your entire life to him. That's what you should do. And so Paul writes again to the church at Galatia, Galatians 5, 9, a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. Jesus to the Pharisees, or to the people talking about the Pharisees, he says in Luke 12, 1, be on your guard against the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So we have sexual sin, we have legalism, we have hypocrisy. All of them are referred to by the term leaven. That's why they couldn't put yeast in this grain offering. Only one time in the New Testament is it, is it referred to as something positive, and that's in Matthew 13, when Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. You want to really, uh, really see what leaven ought to be? It ought to be you and I going out to the community and influencing it for the kingdom of God. We, we, like, we shouldn't let sin be leaven in our lives or in our churches. We should be leaven that goes out into the community and influences it for the kingdom of God. By the way, the grain offering was the only offering that didn't involve the death of something sacrificed. I want to remind you that when you and I submit ourselves to Christ, something has to die, and that something is your pride. So it's a celebratory offering, a costly offering, and a consecrated offering, but also it was a complete offering. The last part of verse 2 into verse 3 says, Burn this memorial portion of it on the altar, a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Some of the offering was destroyed just like the burnt offering. He calls it a memorial portion. And that makes me think, when, when, when uh, Peter was on the rooftop and he had the vision from God about Cornelius in Acts 10, this is what it says in Acts 10.4. The angel says to, to Peter in his vision, your prayers and your acts of charity have ascended as a memorial offering before God. Now listen, don't, don't miss this. Nothing in the Bible is coincidental or happenstance. God tells them in Leviticus 2 that this is going to be a memorial offering. And it's going to rise up as a pleasant aroma to God. And then Peter hears from the angel... Your prayers and your acts of charity, in other words, how you live your life, your devotion to God, 
is a memorial offering. It's just like this grain offering. When you and I go out and take the gospel as it is to people as they are, and we serve others sacrificially, we love others with the love of Christ so that he is exalted, it's a memorial offering. And our lives become a pleasing aroma that can be burnt on that altar that Paul talks about in Romans 12 that would rise up and be a pleasing aroma to our God. The rest of the grain offering went to the priests for their use and was their primary source of daily food. Uh, Just as a reminder, uh, later on when you see them get into the promised land and they get their inheritance, the priests don't get an inheritance of land. The 12 tribes do, but the priests don't. It was the people's responsibility to take care of the priesthood, and that's part of what this is. God is saying, hey, remember your priests. When you bring this offering, some of it is burnt up, But the rest of it, and I think he even calls that the most holy part. Yeah, the holiest part of the fire offerings to the Lord go to the priests for their consumption. And again, all of this brings me back to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul writes, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Verse 1 shows the expectation of complete surrender. Verse 2 shows how we're to offer that surrender as a sacrifice to God. And then the rest of chapter 12 shows us how we're supposed to use those gifts in service with others for the kingdom. Here's the thing. If you skip the first two verses and you just go into how to do church... You end up with what we've seen in our society a lot of times. You have these uh, churches that look like they have everything together because they've got these strategies and plans and everything's like a well-oiled machine, but they've forgotten the most important part, which is to offer themselves as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, pleasing to God, which is your reasonable act of worship or service. They miss uh, miss the importance of the sacrificial part for the heart, and all they think about is the functional part of the body. You could be a very strong-looking body with a terrible spirit, and you are headed for nowhere. We have to make sure that we understand as we continue to grow and see God do some big things in our church, it all comes back to how we present ourselves as a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable, pleasing to God, which is our reasonable act of worship. We've got to make sure that this is right before any of this stuff even matters. It's our focus that matters. And Jesus modeled what that looks like. When we say we want to put our bodies on the, on the altar as a living sacrifice, Jesus took that to the nth degree. He put his body on the cross as a living sacrifice that would die for our sake. In Ephesians 5, we see how Jesus is this example. So many times this passage is used to talk about marriage, and it's good, it should be. But here's the thing, we miss the point if we just hear, husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands. That, that's, that's, that's all good and we should do that, but we're missing the point if we don't see all of it. So what I want to do is I'm going to ignore the first part of verse 25 for our purposes to make you see what that, what that passage is really focusing on. It says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Again, take husbands and wives out of the equation for the time being. Let's focus on the meat of what we're seeing in the sacrifice of Jesus. Remember, we're talking about the grain offering. We're talking about the sacrifice. It's got to be costly. It's celebratory. It's consecrated. It's complete. Listen to what he says. He gave himself for her to make her holy. 
Not to make her feel good. Not to make her look good. Not to make people think she was good. To make her, us, holy. Cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. Verse 27, he did this to present the church, his bride, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that. I I would say fine flour, pure olive oil, beautiful frankincense, but holy and blameless. So it's a celebratory offering, a costly, consecrated and complete offering. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17. He said, don't think that I come to abolish the law of prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. So what does that mean? Does that mean we should still be doing these offerings, Brother Kevin? Do we need to have, you know, an altar down here with blood sprinkled on it? We bring it? No. What he's saying is, I didn't come to demolish all that stuff. All of that stuff has a purpose. It shows you how serious God takes sin. It shows you there must be an atonement for that sin. And it tells you, the law tells you that you can't get there from here. If you're trying to get to heaven by the law, I promise you, you're not going to make it out of the parking lot. All of that stuff pointed us to our need for Christ. Everything that we see in the Jewish customs, in the Levitical law, in the Hebraic structure of religion, everything had a purpose and a point to aim us towards the coming Messiah. That's why it's so heartbreaking when my Jewish brothers and sisters miss Jesus. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He has come to make us, the bride of Christ, holy, to make us clean, to present us with splendor, without spot or wrinkle, holy and blameless. That's what he came to do. How did he come to do it? Look at John 12, 23 through 24. Jesus replies to the disciples. He's talking about his end is near, and he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Oh, man. Listen, I could preach all day about just that sentence. Chris, how how was being beaten beyond recognition, stripped naked and hung on a cross to die, glorifying? In our perspective and for our in our economy, that's not a way to get glory. By the way, if you want to celebrate your pastor, don't beat him to death, strip him naked, and hang him on a cross. I don't want it, I don't want that kind of glory. So how was Jesus saying that that was glory? Because he was being fully obedient to the Father. He was glorified not in the condition he was in, but in the condition of his heart because he was in that situation because he was doing exactly, precisely, fully, completely what the Father had told him to do. And he goes on to say this, Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Any of you know anything about planting, you know we can take a seed, a grain of of wheat, and we can lay it up here on this carpet, and we can leave it forever. And as long as nobody vacuums it up or steps on it or or covers it with some good soil, it's just going to lay there and be a grain of wheat by itself alone. And Jesus is saying that he was like that grain of wheat, but he didn't lay there alone. Listen to me. He was crushed. Isaiah said it pleased the Father to crush him. He was crushed and he went in the ground. But he didn't stay dead in the ground. He rose. And that's his point. How we produce much fruit is that we die to self and we let the Holy Spirit of God use us for whatever purposes 
he has in our life. In our devotion to Christ, we have an experience similar to the grain offering in that we allow our will, our desires, our flesh to be burnt up. But we don't literally die. We live on as ambassadors for Christ and as new creations for Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. We need atonement because we're not perfect. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 6, or Romans 3.23. Romans 6.23, the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. All we like sheep have gone astray. There's so many passages in Scripture that point us to our imperfection and so many others that point us to the perfection of Jesus. He is that grain offering, and we are to be that grain offering for Him. We're to live our lives in a way that points people to Christ. Have you allowed your flesh, your sin, your pride to be burnt up? And have you promised to live the rest of your life in surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? If not, I beg you to do that today because that's the only way to be reconciled back to God and the only way to be restored to His service. You see, you weren't saved to sit and soak and one day go to heaven. You were saved to show others that there is hope. You were saved so that you could put your body on the altar and be burnt up as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, pleasing unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. You and I were not saved so that we would go to heaven. Go to heaven is the, is the cherry on top of the Sunday. We were saved to see others saved. We are beggars who have found bread, and we're trying to tell every other beggar we meet where the bread is. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, I beg you today to commit, commit your life to Jesus. You're not going to tell him anything he doesn't already know. All you can do is tell him you're a sinner and you're in desperate need of a Savior. You want to commit your life to him and you want to have him save you and then put you into service. If you're here today and you've claimed to be a follower of Christ but you've never been committed to service and you're not living in a way that shuns your sin and tries to move closer to his holiness, please, I beg you, listen to the Holy Spirit prompting you. You either need to clean some stuff up or maybe you're living with a false assumption. The Bible is full of verses that tell us that if we're going to truly be followers of Christ, we have to be completely surrendered to Christ. He's not a get-out-of-hell-free card. He's not some kind of free ticket to get you out of all the stuff you've ever done. He is the holy, righteous Lord of creation, the King of kings. He deserves your complete surrender. If you've never given your life to Christ, I pray that you would do that today. I'm going to pray when I say amen. I want you to think of that amen as a starter's pistol. Don't look around to see if anybody else is looking or moving. If you know that you're lost today, don't walk out of these doors without professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray when I say amen. You move if you need to be prayed for, if you need to come and make a profession of faith. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the power and the authority of your word. I pray that I have not corrupted it or shaded it in any way. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would take your word today and move in power. I pray that you would be exalted, and I pray that if there's anyone here that does not know Christ, that they wouldn't wait another day. They wouldn't risk eternity for another day. They would repent of their sins, put their faith and trust in Jesus. God, if there's anybody here who's done that but is living distant from you, I pray that you would draw them closer. Help them to shun the sin in their life. Let it be burnt up and commit their lives more fully for you. Father, whatever you want to do in this service, this time is yours. Use it for your glory. We'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.